How many of you remember Blockbuster? <laughs> now, for those of you that don't, this was a brick and mortar store where you had to go to rent a movie. If you wanted to watch a movie, you had to go there and get one. In 2004, Blockbuster was at the peak of its success. It had taken the franchise model of business and had bought up nearly every mom and pop video store across the nation and converted them to Blockbuster. So in the 80s, if you wanted to go get a movie, you went to a, a video rental store, but it was probably owned by some couple there in town and probably attached to a, a tanning bed or a taxidermy or something else like that. And um, you'd go and get your VHS. Well, Blockbuster saw that there was much success and much money to be made in the franchise model, and so they took all these and made them video rental stores, and they popped up all across the nation, and they were making tons of money in 2004. And Netflix was on the scene, but it was a, it was a small newcomer, had not been around very long, and it had a subscription-based mailing service. So you went online, you found a DVD, and it came to your your mailbox in this little envelope and then you, you sent it back. Blockbuster didn't think much about Netflix as any type of serious contender. They had been the leader in the industry for a number of years and they assumed that people would want to continue the shopping experience of going to the store. So I moved to Atlanta in 2008 and we had a Blockbuster membership. It was less than a mile away from our house. We enjoyed the experience of going and looking at the movie cases and smelling the popcorn and all the rest. And so they just assumed that of course, this is the way people are going to want to watch movies on into the future. In 2000, so a few years prior to its success, um, Netflix's founder, Reed Hastings, had proposed a partnership with Blockbuster. He proposed, why don't you advertise our services in your stores, because you've got the stores and you have the customers, and in turn, we will run Blockbuster online. We will provide the online subscription that they were offering at the time. And the CEO of Blockbuster at that time, he turned it down because he thought Netflix was this niche business that was not going to be around very long. Blockbuster filed bankruptcy in 2010, and Netflix is now valued at $30 billion. And as Paul Harvey used to say, friends, that is the rest of the story. Some of you, many of you do not know who Paul Harvey is. <laughs> Moments where we fail to understand what's most important can be costly. Moments where we fail to understand what is most important can be costly. It can be costly for businesses like Blockbuster where they fail to innovate and many others who have failed to make changes at critical times and has led to their, their downfall. It can be true in our relationships with others, with family members. You may think one thing is very important in your relationship with someone and they think it's something very different and you fail to realize just how important that was and how it can lead to even the demise of relationship. It's true in school, it's true in our careers. We could go on and on with the examples but there's nothing more costly than failing to understand and to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of God. There's nothing more eternally costly than not only understanding that to be intellectually true, but getting to the point in your life where you're willing to commit your life to Jesus as Lord 
and Son of God. And that's what we want to think about in our passage today. So if you haven't already, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. It's just a few pages on over into the New Testament. Mark's gospel is the shortest gospel. It's the first gospel that's been recorded. Mark chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 21. Mark wrote his gospel in order to show what was predominantly a, 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 Jew, a Gentile audience, a non-Jewish group of readers, that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus from the region of Galilee, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. And some of the very first words that Mark records Jesus saying in his ministry is, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. And for the first nine verses, or rather the first nine chapters, Mark goes on to prove these words to be true, to show how the kingdom of God has now come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth through his teaching, through his miracles, through his healing, through his exorcism, and, and, and all the rest. He wants to show that God's redemptive rule and reign has come in the person of Jesus. And that's the setting that we find here. Jesus is in the region of Galilee, and that's really the region in the area, the northern part of Palestine, that Mark focuses his first nine chapters on as Jesus is going about this region. So if you look there in uh, verse 10, it says, And he, or immediately he, this being Jesus, got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Uh, this is the western side of the Sea of Galilee, not far from his hometown of Nazareth. I think the central moment, a kind of critical uh, hinging point, junction point in Mark's gospel is just a few verses later from ours where Jesus, he privately begins to explain that he is the Christ and how as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, he's going to have to suffer many things, he's going to die, and he's going to be raised again. So look over in Mark chapter 8 verse 27. Mark chapter 8 verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, that's the religious leaders, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So here we find this, this great profession of faith that, that Peter makes on behalf really of all the disciples, that yes, you are the Christ. And you think, oh, the disciples, they finally get it. They realize who they have been with this whole time. And, and now as Jesus is about to turn his face to Jerusalem and go there and know that he's going to, to be handed over to be killed, you think, oh, the disciples are going to remain faithful because they get it. They understand who this is, and they're going to follow after him. But as we're going to see in our passage today, they didn't really get it. Even with all this very plain teaching that Jesus gave them, they were slow to believe. There's a, a certain dullness about them 
where things just didn't quite register. They didn't quite fully realize who they had been with, what he had been teaching them, what he had been revealing to them, and what he was about to do for them. Jesus warns them of their slowness to believe in our passage. After a, a hostile encounter with the Pharisees, he exhorts them not to be slow to understand and not to have a hard heart to believe. He wants them to understand that he is the Christ, the Son of God. So follow along as I read Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? A couple of things I want us to see from this passage today. First, we want to see the Pharisees' understandable but wrongly motivated request. The Pharisees' understandable but wrongly motivated request, and we want to see the disciples' understandable but wrongly prioritized concern. So first, in verses 11 through 13, we see the Pharisees' understandable but wrongly motivated request. It's understandable that the Pharisees would come to Jesus and that they would want to see some type of sign that would validate his teaching that would validate his authority that he had accrued and, and that he had claimed for himself. I mean, after all, if, if, people are, if, if someone were going into your religious centers and your places of ministry and began to teach with the authority that Jesus was teaching and began to gain a popularity and great crowds began to follow this person, you'd want to know, is this person a true teacher? Are they a true prophet of the Lord? And a sign from heaven, a sign from God, would validate Jesus in this. And so it's very understandable that they had asked this. But it's very clear, the text makes it very clear that their text, their request, it was wrongly motivated. They were not actually looking to val for Jesus to validate his claims. They sought yet another opportunity to find cause to discredit him, to destroy him. Now, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to the Bible, let me just take a moment and explain who these Pharisees are. Um, these are very central, they're important central figures in the, the Gospels and in the book of Acts, the historical accounts of Jesus, the disciples, and, and the early church. You're going to be helped by understanding who they are. If you go back into the Old Testament, you won't find the Pharisees. They're, they're not there. They didn't exist. They came about sometime after the, New Test or the Old Testament period ended. We first find reference to them by, from a Jewish 
historian Josephus, and we're not exactly sure how they were formed, but we can tell why they existed during Jesus' time. Life for the Jews had changed drastically by this time. Um, in part, there were Jews living all over the place because of the exile that God brought about that we find in the Old Testament that is actually prophesied in the passage that we read this morning. Um, Greek culture had become predominant, and so there are a lot of people that, a lot of Jews that had merged a Jewish way of life with a, a Greek way of life. And so your New Testament is originally written in Greek by Jewish writers who spoke, who could speak Hebrew, many of them, but they wrote in the common language of Greek. But religious life had changed significantly. Ceremonial practices and sacrifices in the temple, they were still very important in Jesus' time, but the great emphasis was on the moral teachings and the ethical behavior and application of the Old Testament. So this is why when you read the gospel, the Jewish leaders, they always question Jesus and his disciples about things like Sabbath keeping or tithing or purification rituals. That's what you can see over in chapter 7. And it's this teaching and this application of the Old Testament law that gave the Pharisees their prominence. Uh, they were not the only Jewish religious group around, but they were by far the most popular because they were responsible for transmitting and preserving and developing traditions of the Old Testament law in its written form and in its oral form. So they very much affected the average life of a Jew in that time. So there'd be a situation in which they were wanting to understand and know how does God's word apply here? Because it's not real clear. We understand what the law is, but in this situation, how does it apply? Well, the, the Pharisees had developed traditions in understanding how to apply those things. And so people looked to them with a great amount of respect and recognized their authority. What's very important to understand is how does the, how the gospels present the Pharisees in relationship to God and in relationship to Jesus. How do the gospel writers present these religious leaders in relationship to God and relationship to Jesus? In relationship to, G, uh, to God, these were the people that did everything they could within their might to make themselves acceptable to God by keeping the Old Testament law. With a great meticulous detail, they sought to obey the law because in so doing, they thought that God showed them favor and that they would be accepted. In relationship to Jesus, they diligently and fervently sought to destroy him as a blasphemous teacher. That was their attitude towards Jesus. And so it's with all that in mind, we come to this text and we understand who these people are and we can begin to understand why they addressed Jesus the way they did. Look again at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Uh, Mark uses four verbs here really to describe how they accosted Jesus. It's like if someone has ever kind of come up to you very quickly and said, hey, we need to have a conversation. There's something we need to talk about. And you're like, okay, what's going on? And they just immediately begin to launch into you. That's kind of what the Pharisees are doing here. It says that he came. It implies a, a storming out to Jesus. And they began to argue with him. This wasn't a reasonable discussion. 
They only wanted to argue with him, seeking a sign from him, a sign from heaven. Uh, this seeking is, again, it's, it's demanding something from him. They weren't seeking like, hey, is there any way that this could be done? Because we have some genuine, humble, honest questions. Mark uses a word here for sign that's different from his word for miracle. They're looking some, for something different than what Jesus had done in all of his miracles, in the feeding of the, of the 5,000 that happened just prior, or in raising people from the dead and all the rest. A sign was a supernatural event of divine intervention that was visible for all. You can think maybe of Jesus on the cross, where in the middle of the day, the sun goes dark, and the curtain in the temple is torn in two. This kind of miraculous event from heaven that affirmed that this is God's son. That's what they were looking for. And that's why the text says, show us a sign from heaven. We want to see God do something miraculous through you, Jesus, in order to validate your claims of who you say that you are. But we see the real reason why they requested the sign. It says to test him. This is what Satan did of Jesus in the wilderness. It was to tempt him. The Pharisees had partnered up with Satan to put an obstacle in front of Jesus in order to discredit him. Now you may be asking, at least you should be asking, how does demanding the sign test and discredit Jesus? It was common in the Old Testament that if a prophet came about, and you want to know, is this prophet true? A number of things had to happen. First, the their prophecy had to be consistent with God's word. It couldn't contradict God's word in any way. Uh, their words had to come true. What they prophesied about had to come true. And often, their prophecy needed to be accompanied by something miraculous, a supernatural sign. You can think of Elijah, where he prays that the Lord would bring down fire from heaven in order that the people would believe, because he felt like he was out there alone and no one was believing his words. So if Jesus didn't perform or if Jesus somehow fell short of what the Pharisees were expecting, then it proved that his power, it wasn't from God. It proved that he wasn't who he said he was and that his teaching was not trustworthy. That's what they wanted to convince the people of. This man going around that you find so popular in all of his teaching, he's not trustworthy. Don't follow him. That's what... They wanted to try to discredit Jesus of. Friends, we shouldn't be surprised by this, by the Pharisees' hostile testing of Jesus. A hard heart, persistent in unbelief, will go to great lengths to discredit Jesus. You see this early on in his ministry. As soon as he begins gaining popularity, Mark chapter 3, verse 6 says that they plotted to destroy him. At the beginning of chapter 7, in verse 1, we find that some Pharisees come from Jerusalem in order to see Jesus and the disciples. I, use your, the, the maps in the back of your Bible, and you can see this is about 100 miles away. That's how far that they had come in order to do this. Some people, they make it their ambition to discredit Jesus. They make it their ambition to discredit the claims of Christianity. And those people, they may be in your life. It may be a coworker, a neighbor. It may be a, a family member, a child, a parent, maybe even your own spouse. 
They are not the first person to seek to do this, and they will not be the last. But brothers and sisters, you know what? You can rest assured that Christianity will endure. Whatever attempts that they make, you don't have to fret. Love them, pray for them, care for them. We're given opportunity, continue to share the gospel with them. But Jesus claims they can be tested over and over and over and over again. And they will be found trustworthy. You can rely on them. In verse 12, Jesus questions them and he denies their request. It says that he sighed deeply in his spirit because it was just another encounter, another moment in which his spirit is angst, saddened maybe even because of their opposition. He rhetorically asked them, why does this generation seek a sign? All of the miracles that he had done, all of the healings that he had performed and they had seen should be more than sufficient in order for them to believe. They had been given plenty of evidence that the kingdom of God had come in him. They didn't need anything else. And notice that Jesus, he doesn't say, why do you demand a sign? Why do you seek a sign? But he says, why does this generation seek a sign? So it's, why do you, and why is it that it's everyone like you, persistent in unbelief, that you want something more than you've been given? You have the word of God. I have come. You've seen all that I've done. What more do you need? They are no different than the sinful generation of Noah's time that tested God. They're no different than the grumbling generation of Moses' time that tested him. Later on, Jesus would say that they're an evil and adulterous generation and a faithless generation. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. That phrase, will be given, implies that God is not going to do what you ask. It's a, it's, a, it's a passive divine form to say God is not going to break through the heavens and show you something miraculous in order to break through your hard heart. He's not going to give you what you request and what you demand of me. They had God's word. They had the word made flesh right in front of them, and they needed nothing else to believe. And Jesus was not going to grant their request. It says in verse 13 that, that Jesus leaves them. He gets in the boat with his disciples, and he, he goes off to the other side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Mark says that he left them. And that could just be a, a detail. There are a number of times where the, the narrative is transitioning, and he's just saying historically this is what happened. I think Mark is actually doing more here. I think he's saying, or at least implying, that Jesus abandoned them in their unbelief. It's not the first time that Jesus had left people. He, in just the last couple of chapters, he leaves the crowds, he leaves the multitudes, and in chapter 6, verse 45, says that he dismissed the crowds. And in chapter 8, verse 9, he says he sent them away, that being the crowds again. But here, it says Jesus left them. It's a, an abrupt departure. I think it's a visible expression of his indignation right after he had given them a word of judgment. Truly, I, I who have authority, say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus is parting with his, the Pharisees to leave them in unbelief. 
At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus went into their synagogues and began teaching with great authority, it says, and not as their scribes, not as their religious experts. And it says that his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And that's what Jesus, or that's what Mark had been showing. But it is from that point on that the Pharisees did not like Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, it says their hearts were hardened. And in verse 6, it says they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians on how to destroy Jesus. That was their mission. As Josh said last week, people can have mission drift. They begin to drift away from their mission. Well, the Pharisees, they never drifted away from their mission. This is what they set out to do. And so their request, it seems reasonable. Historically, theologically, it's understandable why would they make this request. Oh, but their motive was much more sinister. Their self-righteous, hard-hearted unbelief was set on destroying Jesus and his claims to be the Christ, the Son of God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder if this request resonates with you in some way. Not necessarily because you want to, dis, you want to see Jesus' claims discredited, but you think there's actually some validity in, in, a, in a type of supernatural, miraculous sign in order to bring people to belief that this is you, that regardless of what you think about Christianity, I want to encourage you to consider these historical accounts of how countless people saw miraculous things performed in front of their very eyes, and they still failed to believe. Maybe you're wrestling with whether or not Christianity is true. And you think you need some type of sign, some type of visible, miraculous thing in order to help you get over that last little bit of skepticism. That if that came about, you'd go, oh, now I believe. If that's you, I want to ask you a question and I want to make a statement. First, I just want to ask you, how do you know that would be enough? Just kind of play that scenario out in your mind, what you envision that thing being or what you think if this could just happen. How do you know that would be enough to bring you to belief that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Son of God. The thing I want to say is that you're failing to understand true faith as the Bible describes it. True faith is taking God at his word. It is, it is believing that his word is reliable and it is saying that I'm going to commit my life, actively commit my life to following after Jesus, trusting him wholeheartedly seeking to obey him with full devotion. That's what biblical faith is. It's not being given a sign going, okay, now, yeah, now I know it's true. It's throwing your life upon Jesus. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't seek this type of demand. Seek Jesus. Believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Church family, this passage, I think, reminds us of the importance and the centrality of preaching Jesus Christ crucified. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, in the following verses, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, if you want to see the power of God on display, 
If you want to see something miraculous, if you want to see God working among people from all nations, Jews and Gentiles alike, then preach the cross. Preach Jesus Christ crucified. Preach the cross in all of its fullness and its horrific human suffering and agony in its unimaginable divine forsakenness of the Father and the Son. We preach the cross that was the preordained plan of God for Jesus' incarnation, the very reason by which he came to this earth and took on flesh. We preach the cross with the sin, Savior's sinless blood that was shed there to atone for the sins of all those who would repent and believe. We preach the cross that we deserve to hang on for our disobedience and rebellion against our Creator God. We preach the cross that is a symbol of shame and suffering. We preach the cross that is utter foolishness to 21st century progressive minds that do not understand why we would want to be in the midst of a pandemic all in one room, hearing from this book from one man for 45 minutes about a guy who died on a cross over 2,000 years ago. We preach the cross that thousands have given their lives to go take is the only good news to the nations. We preach the cross where what people fear most, death, death itself has been defeated and life has been won. So brothers and sisters, this is the only truth that this church is built on and it's the only mission we have is to proclaim this gospel, Jesus Christ, him crucified and raised from the dead. Preach that message and see God's power at work in the hearts and lives of people, validating and affirming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The Pharisees had an understandable but wrongly motivated request. Next, the disciples, they had an understandable but wrongly prioritized concern. An understandable but wrongly prioritized concern. Verses 14 through 21 again. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And the disciples had a real concern. There are 13 of them. They're going about eight miles, somewhere between eight and 10 miles across the sea and there's only one loaf of bread and it's going to take some time to get there before presumably they could buy some more bread and they're arguing about this if you have young kids and have forgotten something essential on a road trip you understand this it's taking you hours and probably much angst maybe a little bit of arguing to get everyone packed up in the van you get going down the road just far enough for it to be really inconvenient to turn around. And you look to your spouse and you say, hey, did you get this item? And they go, no, you were supposed to get it. No, I told you when you were doing this, you were supposed to get it. No, and all of a sudden, you're in an argument, 
And for the next little bit of time, it's the only thing you can talk about because you're consumed and rightfully understanding how in the world are we going to make the next number of hours without this essential item that these kids need. That's the way the disciples are in this conversation. They are just consumed with the fact that they have one loaf of bread. That's all they can talk about. They're, Mark points out the fact that they only have one loaf of bread. Jesus warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. They ignore him, or they're so consumed with this conversation, they go back and he has to come to them again and say, do you not understand? They disputed over the food. It's reasonable that they would want to know how they were going to be fed, but Jesus saw this as an opportunity to reveal to them that they had a much greater problem than they realized. Their concern for bread revealed how they struggled to understand the significance of Jesus' ministry among them. That he had been revealing to them the kingdom of God, and they still did not get it after all this time. Verse 15, he cautions the disciples with this emphatic warning. Watch out. Beware. Be on alert for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is used in dough to help the bread rise. It has the key ingredient of yeast, and whenever it went into the dough, it's going to spread throughout the whole, whole lump of dough. And the Bible uses it figuratively uh, nearly all the time in a negative way to say, you need to get this bad thing away from you. You need to remove it from your midst. And so Jesus here is cautioning them of the leaven, the bad example of the Pharisees and Herod, how it could affect the disciples. We don't know exactly what Mark means. Unlike Matthew and Luke, he doesn't define the leaven of the Pharisees um, and Herod. But I think from the context, I think from Jesus' other conflicts that he has with the Pharisees, it seems that he means their persistent unbelief and their opposition to him. Herod refers to Herod Antipas. This would be the son of the great king, Herod the Great, who was a Jewish, uh, Jewish king that died right before Jesus was born. Uh, Herod the Great ruled over Palestine when he died. He ruled under the Roman emperors, an empire at that time. When he died, the emperor divided up his land, gave it to his three sons, and Herod Antipas here was given the region of Galilee. This is the upper part of Palestine. So this is the area in which he ruled. And this is the same Herod that John the Baptist criticized for his unlawful divorce. And eventually that got John the Baptist arrested and, as you know, beheaded. It's the same Herod that when Jesus is on trial in front of Pontius Pilate, Pontius says, wait, this man is from Nazareth. So he sends him back up north where he has to stand before Herod. And Herod had heard a lot about Jesus, but had never met him before. And so when Pilate sends him back up there, it says that, that, uh, that Herod was glad to see him. And he too began to demand signs from Jesus because he wanted to see these miraculous things. Jesus didn't do them. He asked them all sorts of questions. Jesus didn't answer them. And then he was treated with a great amount of contempt by Herod and the soldiers. He's beaten and he's sent back down to Pilate. What's fascinating is Luke says that, that Pilate and Herod, there was some animosity between the two of them, but then they formed this lasting friendship because of their equal mistreatment of Jesus. That's a sad way to form a friendship. 
But I think the point that Marcus, that Jesus is making here is that he knew of Herod's history. He knew of the Jews' history that supported Herod and how they persisted in unbelief and how they opposed him and how they had a hard heart of unbelief. And so he warns his disciples, do not be like them. In verses 17 through 21, he exhorts his disciples with seven questions. He's trying to get their attention as to what really matters, and it's not about the bread. It's the danger of not believing. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? I mean, at this point, it really should be of absolutely no concern how much or how little bread that you have, unless you have completely forgotten what I did with the multitudes. Do you not remember how on two occasions with 9,000 people combined, I fed all of them with just a, a few loaves of bread and a few fish? He says, when that was all done, how many baskets of breadcrumbs were left over? 19. 19 baskets of breadcrumbs left over after I fed 9,000 people with just a few loaves of bread. Why in the world are you worried about your provision? Do you not yet understand that I am the Lord that provides everything that you need? I had a great amount of compassion upon the crowds, upon the multitudes. I didn't want to send them away because they'd go away starving and some of them could even die. Do you not think that I have even more compassion and care and concern for you? Do you not think that I will provide for you? Do you not remember who I am and what I have done? Crumbs would still be on their garments as they're arguing about how they're going to be fed. We need to be slow to judge the disciples because really, are we any different? How quick are we to worry and be consumed with God's provision in our lives and fail to remember all that he's done? Bread crumbs can be on my shirt as I sit there and worry about what God needs to provide for me. It's Mother's Day, and I, I want to just brag on my wife for a moment. Before coming to Mount Vernon, I had a job that was a 100% commission, and there are a number of months in which it was difficult. I was just wondering how in the world are we going to make it because sales were not very good. And my wife regularly and faithfully said, why do you worry? Do you not remember how the Lord is always faithful to provide? And that's just been kind of a hallmark of her life and our marriage and a constant reminder to me when I'm like the disciples sitting here arguing with her probably about something and she goes why do you worry the Lord is going to provide brothers and sisters the Lord will do the same in your life he is the Lord and giver of life it's these three other questions that show why this was such a serious matter their preoccupation with bread exposed their spiritual blindness and deafness and the possibility of even a hard heart. Do you not yet perceive and not yet understand? He asked him twice. Jesus had explained the purpose for teaching in parables was to hide the secrets of the kingdom of God, but he was only hiding it to outsiders, to those to whom God was not drawing to himself in faith he was hiding the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to the disciples, he set them aside privately, and he explained to them what he meant by the parables, because to them he was revealing the secrets of the kingdom of God. And he comes to you, and do you not realize that after all this time, 
Do you not yet understand these secrets of who I am, of this kingdom that I have brought about? He's been graciously revealing it to them. Verse 17, again, are your hearts hardened? Some people, when they encounter Jesus, their hearts, the thing that empowers their will, their emotions, their ambitions, it's hardened to Jesus in rebellion. It's not softened to who he is. And he's questioning, is, is that you? Are, are you any different than the Pharisees in this way? It had to be one of the most frightful questions he could have asked them because of the implication that one day Jesus could abandon them. And we know later that at least one of the, this was true of one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who abandoned him, who had a hard heart. Verse 18, having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear. Spiritually speaking, their eyes and ears did not function properly in response to the Son of God. Could it be that the disciples, that they were no different than Judah that we read about in Jeremiah chapter 5. They were blind and deaf about how their sin is the cause of the Babylonian captivity. Their unwillingness to believe God's word brought about his judgment. And would the same be true of these disciples after all this time? And so through these series of questions, he's encouraging them, believe, trust me, do not forsake following me. The disciples, they wrongly prioritized the lack of bread when they should have been concerned with their lack or their little faith in him. What about us? What about you? What can we learn from this? I want to briefly conclude with three applications. Three applications to conclude with. First, it's possible to be near the truth of Jesus and be very far from having true faith in Jesus. It's possible to be near the truth of Jesus and be very far from having true faith in Jesus. And I, I say this word, uh, particularly to you young people that are raised in Christian homes and are being raised up in this church. It is a wonderful gift to be raised in a Christian home. It is a wonderful gift to be raised in the church where you regularly hear the truth of God's word in the gospel. And I don't know where you may be in your faith, where you may be in making a, a, a public profession of faith and where you may be in committing your life to Jesus, but I want you to understand that you cannot assume that you are a Christian just because you hear these truths regularly. You cannot assume that you are a Christian because you may think them to be historically true. You have to commit your heart and your life to following after Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Believe upon him. Do not let it be said that you are near to the things of Jesus, but you are very far from following after Jesus. Second, it's possible for any of us to fall away from trusting Christ. It's possible for any of us to fall away from trusting Christ. Now, if that happens, I think you are never really one of Christ's followers. But in 20 years of ministry, I've seen it happen a number of times. Scripture warns us over it, about it over and over again, especially in the book of Hebrews. I would say that, that I like, I think many of you, the more I've matured in my faith, I've experienced this strange tension in, in my own heart and mind. I've seen the ways in which I've matured. 
Like there, there are things that I can identify and say I'm more obedient here than I was previously. And that should give me a great amount of assurance, not because of me, but because of the Lord at work in me. And yet, as I've also matured, I've more feared the possibility of falling away. Because I, I think in that I'm seeing God's grace in growing me in holiness, and at the same time, I have greater amount of clarity where I need His grace more to follow after Him that I just know my own heart more to say, ah, oh, I could be just like that. And so my prayer for myself and my prayer for you as one of your pastors and just as a member of this church is that God would keep all of us. He would keep us in his grace, that none of us would turn away from seeing and believing. Lastly, daily depend more on Christ and less on yourself. Daily depend more on Christ and less on yourself. If you want to know how you can be kept and persevere, this is it. Spurgeon preached to his congregation and wanted to encourage people in his midst who had little faith. He wanted to see their faith grow. And he said, Beloved, the only way in which we can maintain our faith is to live above the praise and criticism of man and self. To live simply upon the blood and merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I had to depend on myself in the least degree, then my soul would be up and down, up and down, up and down. But since I rely on Christ and what He has done, since He is the unbuttressed pillar of my hope, then come what may, my soul does rest secure, confident in faith. Faith will never be weak if self is weak. But when self is strong, faith cannot be strong. Faith will never be weak if self is weak. But when self is strong, faith cannot be strong. Brothers and sisters, depend more on Christ today. Look more to Him by faith today. Not to yourself, not to any virtue, not to any measure of faith, but look to him and what he's done as the Christ crucified and risen Son of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you. And we praise you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you've revealed these truths in your word and you've revealed them to us in our hearts. By your Spirit, you've gifted us with faith to follow after him. Father, we know ourselves to be very much like the disciples, to be worried and consumed with little faith of how you might provide and at times where it's hard to trust you. Father, may that not be the case. And Father, we pray that we'd persist and persevere in believing and understanding and that we would rely more on Christ each and every day. His merits and his blood atone for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.